Specialty Story, session number 192. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, where I get to have an amazing conversation with a physician and talk about their specialty of choice. And this week is no exception, and this is a different one. I'm actually talking to an active duty army physician about his specialty as a critical care physician. Now, historically, I have avoided military physicians on specialty stories because a lot of times, even though what they're practicing is very similar to what a a civilian physician would be practicing, their day-to-day job is sometimes very different because of other military requirements. But I enjoyed talking to Dr. Kevin Chung today because as a critical care physician, his time is spent in a hospital, just like every other physician in a hospital. And yes, he is a military member, an army member. He's actually retiring soon and will be joining the civilian workforce as a critical care physician. But we talk all about critical care medicine, what inspired him to go into critical care medicine, how he trains and and utilizes those skills, whether for deployment or here back home, and so much more. It was a great conversation that I had with Dr. Kevin Chung. We start the conversation by finding out exactly how he became interested in critical care medicine to begin with. So I did my residency in uh, a place called Eisenhower Army Medical Center in Fort Gordon, Georgia. Uh, it is a small community hospital uh, compared to all the other military treatment facilities, relatively smaller than most, and I would consider it a community hospital. And I don't know what it was about that area and that catchment area and the type of patients. Maybe it's just the South. But man, when I rotated in the ICU as an internist, uh, internal medicine resident, we had some really, really sick patients. Um and I, um, what, one of the things that uh, was also striking is that there, there was a, uh, a string of intensivists uh, or former residents who had become intensivists out of that program um, for, you know, really the same reasons. They, they were used to taking care of very sick patients. And also at the same time, I, I happened to have a program director uh, whose name is Bill Brown, um, who was an intensivist who had trained at the Mayo Clinic and then came down there. The Army assigned him there as, as, the, as an intensivist and a, and a program director. So lots of influences there. And I was debating between cardiology uh, and critical care. I liked working with my hands. I liked procedures. I liked dealing with the urgent, emergent situations. And uh, debating back and forth. And what really tilted me towards critical care is, uh, to be honest with you, 9 11. Uh, 9/11 happened when I was a second year resident, and uh, after you know that that whole disaster and just the second and third order effects, all of us are reeling, and then the dust settles. We all realize things have changed in the world. Uh, dust settles, and and um, I have to think about my 
my future. And um, I started thinking about, well, if I do cardiology, uh, we're going to be going to war. How am I going to use my cardiology skills? Um, and uh, so the, that event really made me think about um, going into a specialty that, that I could uh, readily contribute and utilize my skills and, and uh, be uh, in the middle of caring for combat casualties. That, that's, that's the reason I, I went into, I decided to, to go into critical care. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. When you first mentioned 9-11 as a kind of a trigger for that, that specialty, I, I was, I was thinking about the, the initial kind of aftermath of that, all the hospitals spun up and there were no yep. patients, right? There, there just, right. N- nobody came. And so I'm like, well, how did that trigger? But it makes sense of, okay, what's next? What, what is the world going to look like next? Yeah. And, and obviously we saw what happened. It makes complete sense that, that we're going to need those skills on the battlefield. It's, yep. it's interesting, not, not typically where I, I take conversations, but unfortunately in this country, we see a lot of trained critical care docs, uh, trauma surgeons coming back from overseas, from, from combat areas, and, and utilizing those skills here in the U.S. from mass casualties and shootings, whether it's the Boston Marathon, we saw those skills being used, right. or Las Vegas, uh, those right. skills being used. Did you ever think that those skills would be useful back home? Um, I... You know, I, I went into it with the mentality of gaining the skills in the States to be able to utilize in a combat support hospital uh, in, in a war zone. Um, I, and when I came back, um, you know, I, yes, there, there were, I, f- I feel like I, I practiced uh, what I trained to be and I became more confident as an intensivist. And I came back with some extra skills, but, um, you know, I, I, I came back to a burn center, you know, so I started yeah. in a burn center after my uh, training. And, uh, when I got deployed, uh, believe it or not, it, it was a little bit of a break from what I was experiencing in the burn center. And, uh, I was still taking care of combat casualties. So at the burn center, when I was first assigned there, we were getting wave after wave of casualties from Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and for th- a three-year period, I did not have a break. Um, and I-, I could honestly say I was physically and mentally, emotionally burnt out. Uh, and when I got the opportunity to deploy, I jumped on it. Uh, and I, in my mind, I was thinking, I can't wait to have this break, <laughs> to be <laughs> honest with you. And, um, and so, uh, so I go into in Iraq and, and Baghdad and and um, experience all the things that you would experience in a combat support hospital, uh, mass casualty after mass casualty, people being blown up. Uh, it, it's just uh, a lot of very, very uh, tough experiences ingrained in my head um, that you know I, I can talk about. Uh, but then when I came back, um, I uh, you know I yes, those skills uh, I was able to use in in the burn center, but because of the specialty I picked, whether I was deployed or at home, I was utilizing the same basic principles of critical care. So I just, you know, unlike some specialties where you go and get deployed and you experience all these new things and you come back with a special skill set, for me, it was different. I was utilizing the same skill set that 
I trained in and acquired during fellowship, utilized it in the, in the combat sport hospital, and then came back and I was just better intensivist. I felt like, yeah. How did you get put with, or find a passion for potentially, uh, treating burn patients? You know, classic military story. (laughs) So, so, you know, as I'm graduating my fellowship at Walter Reed, um, in the military, there's somebody called the consultant, right? Yep. You have the, the service lead or whatever in the Air Force. I forget what you, you're, we had they're consultants, consultants yep. in the Air Force. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have a critical, we had the critical care consultant at that time. And, uh, he sat down with me and I asked him, you know, sir, what positions are, are open? I'd be very much interested in going back to Eisenhower in Augusta, Georgia. I loved it. My family loved it. My wife and I. I uh, loved it. Um, or I would love to go to Madigan. You know, that seems like a nice place to practice and et cetera, et cetera. And he looks at me, he goes, you're going to the ISR. So that's where the army needs you. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I uh, pause for a second. ISR, isn't that like a surveillance and reconnaissance? Intelli- it, I, I had no idea what the ISR was. The ISR is the Institute of Surgical Research. It's sort of the other name for the U.S. Army Burn Center. Mm. And when he explained that to me, I was like, oh, okay. Um, so I, I didn't choose a career in Burns. Uh, the career <laughs> in Burns chose me. Yeah. And my consultant assigned me, and I had the experience without me having any idea what, what that was all about. Yeah. And is that, that at SAMC in San Antonio as well? Yeah. So, yeah, you, so you didn't travel far? Yeah. No, I didn't. Yes. I, yeah, I mean, I went, from, I went from my fellowship at Walter Reed to to uh san antonio so yeah 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 all right um uh so i i've I've been to the burn center there at samc amazing uh hospital system there um great great facilities so uh some good training as you're going through that as you were coming out obviously again talking through this uh point in your life where you're like we're going to need these types of doctors because of what happened on 9-11. Have you ever yep. thought back and be like, wow, like I, I really miss cardiology or I wonder what my life would look like as a cardiologist in the army versus a, a critical care doc. You, you ever have those moments of, of regret or contemplation of what, what could have been? You know, that's an interesting question, Ryan. Uh, no, not at all. Uh, I have no regrets. Um, everything that I learned during my fellowship, I feel like I've utilized effectively throughout my career. Uh, you know, I didn't have to change my practice at all when I got deployed. When I came back, I felt like I had augmented my skill set. Um, in my practice in the military hospital at, at, at Brook and in San Antonio, I've, um, sort of added on to that skill set. And, um, you know, it's been incredibly rewarding. Uh, I would not change a thing. Uh, whereas, you know, I love my cardiology colleagues and I loved, um, the practice of cardiology and all the interventions. Um, but in the military, there's a lot of outsourcing to civilian centers, Mm -hmm. you know, the military is moving towards outsourcing and, and, um, especially, uh, for specific, you know, skills and procedures like, uh, stent placement, so on and so forth. We're, we're trying to capture those patients back, but 
uh, when TRICARE came to be and it became easier uh, for the sake of the beneficiaries, easier for our beneficiaries to get access by going to where they lived, you know, the hospitals near where they lived. Uh, unfortunately, we lost a lot of patients yeah. um, to the community. And so, um, I, you know, if you want a robust cardiology practice with lots of interventions, uh, yes, the military has uh, those patients, but we're not high volume. And you'll read about that in the newspaper. And yeah, uh, there's been that discussion uh, for, for a while. Critical care was not impacted much, uh, yeah. especially during the war period. I mean, we we were needed. And now with the pandemic, holy cow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what? even, you know, completely uh, reinforced, uh, you know, that that was the right choice to do critical care, at least in my mind. But I'm bi- I'm very biased, as you can see. Yeah. So, so someone hearing that of like, well, how does critical care, how does the pandemic affect that? Especially for you being in the military and, and what you just talked about of going to war and, and uh, treating burn patients, like what does critical care have to do with infectious disease? And, and that right. kind of leads me into this question around kind of myths or misconception of what is critical care? Because I think yeah. hearing your initial discussion, it's like, well, it's, it's all um, uh, just trauma and amputations and burns, and but it, it's, it's much more than that. Talk, talk about what that more is. Yeah, so I consider myself a multi-organ failure uh, therapy enthusiast. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully and not so an evangelist, I, just an enthusiast. No, an enthusiast. <laughs> and so I um, get excited about the opportunity to, to help treat any type of organ failure. Um, and so when somebody gets really sick, no matter whether it's from burns, trauma, after a major surgery, they come in off the street because of bacterial pneumonia, or they come in off the street because of COVID. The end result when they get really, really sick is the same. They develop multi-organ failure. And as an intensivist, um, you address all those organ systems sequentially in a very systematic way. And uh, you have at your disposal multiple tools to help um, you know, bridge somebody towards recovery. And so there, there's very little that we do that, you know, of course, antibiotics, you're going to help cure somebody if they have a bacterial infection. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, after a burn or after a major trauma, uh, the, 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 what I've learned over 20 years of critical care is that less is more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so if you just provide supportive care, uh, and do the least amount of damage you can possibly do, uh, and just let time uh, sort of pass. Uh, human beings are incredibly, you know, uh, resilient, and uh, those that are meant to survive will survive, especially young folks. And so you just got to su- support them through uh, an injury or an insult or an organ failure by putting them on the ventilator gently for a little while, um, and then also if their kidneys fail by providing metabolic support with renal replacement therapy. Um, If their lungs really, really fail and they, you know, fail the mechanical ventilator and the, the, um, the support that the mechanical ventilator can provide 
then they go on ECMO or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. And so my Air Force colleagues in San Antonio and I, uh, somebody, there's a guy named uh, Jeremy Cannon, who's a trauma surgeon. Um, he led a group of us intensivists. He was a trauma surgeon. We were uh, medical anesthesia, ER intensivists all together uh, as a group started the ECMO program at, at, in San Antonio. And that ECMO program is just phenomenal. It, it brings the patients to San Antonio to a military treatment facility uh, because of that special skill set. Um, and so that's what critical care is. It's providing support uh, to all the organs, whether, whether it's the lung or the kidneys. Sometimes you can do liver support if your livers fail um, to allow time for the body to heal so that they can get out of the hospital if that's meant to happen. Yeah. Of course, a lot of times um, there are things you can't control form of big conditions, uh, age, nature, essentially. Yeah. What does a typical day look like for you? So when I'm in the ICU, um, that's a good question. You know, <clears throat> during training, you know, the typical day during training is very different than, as you know, the typical day as an attending. So uh, as an intern resident and even as a fellow, um, an ICU can be very daunting and, and um it can be very intimidating because you have very, very sick patients. You have tons of data and you got to go in early to, to look at the charts, look at the patient, look at all the data and put it into a, a format that makes sense to present it. Well, once you've finished all that training, now you're on the receiving end. And so let's say rounds in the medical ICU or even in the burn center, uh, which start at eight o'clock, I would come in around seven, you know, and I would look through the chart. Basically, you know, just look at the major issues for each patient. Uh, a typical census uh, that is reasonable is something around 10 to 20. So 10 is sort of uh, busy, but not, you know, you're not dealing with an empty unit and just twiddling your thumb all day. So 10 is about average. And then 20 is when you get uh, really, really busy and the ICU is hopping. And so that's a reasonable workload for an intensivist. Um, and so I, I would pre-round as an intending, you know, you're just sort of looking through charts and making sure uh, things, issues from overnight have been uh, handed off to you. you. You normally get, if there's a night person, depending on the type of practice, they'll sign out to you. Uh, and then I start rounds at eight o'clock. And um, in an academic practice, uh, you have students, you have interns, residents, and fellows who all sort of gather around outside the patient's room, along with the, the bedside nurse, the head nurse. Uh, in a good ICU, you'll have the physical therapist, you'll have the respiratory therapist, you'll have the pharmacist, you'll have, you know, a social worker. You know, the more team members that are involved, the better care, in my opinion. And that's something I learned in the burn center. And so you'll have like 20 people sometimes on rounds. And as an attending, you're running rounds, you're, you're facilitating rounds. So the, the intern or the resident, or sometimes the student will, will present the patient and optimally the attending's role is to facilitate the discussion and make sure that all the data points are covered, uh, all the diagnoses that need to be made uh, are made, all the questions that, are, that need to be asked are asked, and then Within that time, you're also teaching. 
Mm-hmm. And so you got to insert some nuggets of information, you know, uh, to, to help benefit the, the team so that the entire team learns. Um, it's a, it's a fine balance and it's a skill set that I had to refine over time. In the beginning, I was like, I would launch on a, you know, mini lecture for five minutes. And then, you know, I did that for a little while and then, but we wouldn't be done with rounds until noon. <laughs> That's no good. You know, we have, people have work to do. The nurses have work to do and we got to take care of the patient. And so how could you round for four hours? That's just, uh, people still do that. Yeah. But I, I would argue that that's not, you know, optimally you want to try to minim- minimize rounds to just work rounds, minimal teaching, and then you can, you can do the chalk talks later on. Uh, but, um, you know, as time has passed, I've been able to just work in some teaching points during the work rounds. And then we, we go through patient to patient to patient. Usually the sickest patient first and then, and then so on and so forth. Uh, or we just go geographically around the ICU. And then you're down with rounds. Uh, sometimes if there's an urgent issue, you'll address it then. Uh, you'll go to the bedside if there's a need to go to the bedside to address an issue or if there's a question. And then you continue rounds. Um, for me as the attending, I finish rounds, release the, the team, and they go start you know, doing the consults. Nowadays, everything's happening during rounds. And so everybody has the text, you know, they're texting and uh, <laughs> what is that? AMS Connect. So as you're rounding, we're consulting our consultants, which is, you know, very efficient. Yeah. And then um, so after rounds is when work starts happening. So you either got to put in lines, um, you got to discharge patients, transfer them out, out of the ICU, or, you know, it could be during rounds or before rounds or after rounds throughout the day you're receiving new admissions uh, to the ICU. Um, what's exciting about the ICU is that, you know, I, I've described this very predictable format. If nothing else is happening and every patient is stable <laughs> and it's, you know, in a busy ICU, it's never like that. You try to, you know, have this very regimented schedule, but it's always interrupted because somebody's crashing. <laughs> How dare uh, they? Whether it's on the floor <laughs> or, you know, whether in the ICU. So, uh, you have to expect the unexpected and just go with the flow. Yeah. For for someone who is interested in that high acuity of patient, but not the urgency potentially you may see maybe in an emergency room, although it's still a smaller percentage of patients, is critical care medicine good for that? Or is there still urgent a, a lot of urgency and acuity in critical care? I think there's a combination of both. Uh, and there are a lot of parallels that you can draw between emergency medicine and critical care. And that's why a lot of emergency medicine docs are now choosing to go into critical care. And that combination is a good marriage. Um, with critical care, you have the added responsibility of having to follow the patients longitudinally until they get discharged out of the ICU. Um, and in our practice currently, uh, we, that's when the patient leaves us and we sign out to the war team and then, uh, we're not responsible for the patient unless they return. Um, so during the time that they're in the ICU, it could be a couple of days or it could be months. I mean, the longest I've had an ICU patient is over a year in the burn unit. Um, but you have that sort of longitudinal, uh, sort of, uh, relationship with, you know, it's not just the patient. In fact, it's rarely the patient because the re- patient has no idea who you are. Mm-hmm. They're most of the time on the ventilator, sedated, 
you know, um, and they're out uh, or in a coma. Um, most of the time, it's the family members that you're dealing with. And so uh, it's almost like even when you're taking care of adults, it's almost like pediatrics yeah. or, you know, because you're dealing more with the family and the, the spouse and family, uh, maybe the parents rather than the patient themselves. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, similarities. Now, you know, for students, uh, the urgent situations may be intimidating. And I can tell you that's a normal feeling. Of course. I mean, anytime you're new at something and there are 15 things you got to remember under pressure, of course, it's going to be intimidating. But what I could tell you and tell them is that after a while, you know, with repetition, you just get better and better at it, you know, over time. And after a few years, or let's say a decade of practice, <laughs> it becomes pattern recognition. You're not even paying attention to the numbers. Yeah. You're just looking at how, how the patient looks. And you've seen 100 patients in the same scenario, in the same bed, in the same position, with the same squiggly lines on the monitor. And you're just looking for something that's a little bit different. Uh, and um, when you, you know, jump into that urgent or emergent situation, it's sort of on, you're on autopilot. You know, it's a skill set that you have to practice simulation and, you know, and over time, just the number of patients, like for, for example, in a, an emergent intubation as an ER doc, that, you know, that's something that ER docs do all the time. And, um, you know, after a while, uh, minus the, the few that are anomalies, most airways are the same. You know, the, the sequence that you go through are the same sequences. And so after a while, you, you just get, you go into this uh, autopilot mode and, and things happen. Um, of course, there are anomalies and yeah. you have to deal, learn to deal with those anomalies and becoming an expert is really all about that like final 1% of learning, right? Yeah. <laughs> and dealing with those things when they go wrong. Yeah. So... As a military physician, you're in military hospitals for the most part. Uh, if if a student were to be a fly on the wall in a military hospital, watching you round, watching you take care of patients, watch, watching you interact with students and, and residents and fellows, would they know that it was a military hospital? That's a great question. Uh, it depends on the hospital and it depends on the types of patients you have in your hospital and the time period. And so, yes, in the middle of a war, when you're taking on combat casualties, absolutely. Uh, during peacetime, less so. Uh, because during peacetime, you're taking care of beneficiaries and their problems and their issues. Uh, and beneficiaries are anybody who's retired out of the military uh, or are active duty uh, and, uh, their spouses and family members. And so, um, you're not going to find a lot of active duty. There are some, but you're not going to find a lot of active duty patients in peacetime coming into your, into your ICU. They're generally a healthy population. They take yeah. care of themselves. Um, most of the patients you come in that come into the hospital during peacetime are going to be the retirees, mm. um, that have the same problems that as any other civilian hospital. And so, I would say um, uh, during peacetime, it's 
really no different than a regular community hospital, subspecialty hospital, tertiary care hospital. During wartime, it's very different. Yeah. Very different. Because not only are the patients sitting there much younger, um, they have different injuries, completely different injuries. You know, you have, you know, maybe the only similarity would be during, let's say, after the Boston bombings, you know, you would have a similar patient population if you compare it to that. But that's rare, thankfully, in the United States. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, you're dealing with an injury pattern that's very, very unique. Um, and, in, you know, when I was in the burn center, you would have the young patients, you would have the blast, and on top of that, you have the burn. And I can tell you whenever other burn centers and, and burn docs from other centers came to our ICU, they were just amazed. And they couldn't believe the, the acuity and how, how severely wounded these people were and still alive. Um, and so very different when you're dealing with wartime. Um, I don't wish that on anyone. I don't, you know, you, you shouldn't come into the military thinking, oh, I want to be, you know, a doctor during war. Um, that that's not why you, you join, but you join in case that happens, you want to be at the right place at the right time. Yeah. For someone who I'm assuming critical care is, is, pretty much 100% hospital-based. You're, you're not out in a private practice, out, out in the community. Um, in terms of outpatient, it's all inpatient. Uh, right. What does that look like for call in that situation? Is there any call or that's, you just, you're on and you're on and you're off, you're off? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So um, the community has moved into a 12 hours on, 12 hours off. So like, you're basically doing shift work. Mm. Um, and so, uh, you know, in general, let's say you're uh, assigned to an ICU in a community hospital. This is in the civilian setting. You'll do five 12-hour shifts, okay? And so when you're off, you're off. Um, in an academic setting, uh, we're moving towards that, you know, shift work uh, to a certain degree. But in an academic setting, oftentimes you'll take weeks at a time because you need some continuity with the residents. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, everything is sort of evolving because the residents used to be, you know, used to take months at a time and like they were there, like, unless they were uh, post-call, they were there like every day and then on call overnight and then there the entire month, right? Well, nowadays, you know, even the residents are doing shifts. So they have the night service that comes on at night. And so there's some, disjointment because in terms of continuity, because you have multiple teams taking care of the patient, mm. you know, who's there pretty much the entire time. And so as an attending uh, in an academic setting, this is true of any academic setting, military or civilian, um, you'll be on for a week. And at night, you'll take calls from either the fellows or the residents who are in-house mm. in the hospital. Uh, and on occasion, in a busy ICU, you'll come in maybe once a week, come into the hospital because there's something that needs your urgent attention that a fellow can't handle. Um, in a less busy ICU, you may not come in at all the entire week. It may be, you know, four or five weeks before you come in, you know? So there's a lot of stuff now that you can handle uh, over the phone or via video chat. Yeah. Um, and so, so now, I mean, telemedicine has, has really, accelerated over the last year and you could do a lot of things via telemedicine that you didn't think you could before but 
it's obvious you can now. Yeah. What's the training path look like to become a critical care doc? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So it depends on the specialty. So if you're a general surgeon and want to do critical care, you can do acute care surgery or trauma or surgical critical care. And it's just an added year after your training. For anesthesia, you do your four-year residency, and then it's one year of critical care. And for, so, so for surgery and anesthesia, you know, the thought is you, ha you have a lot of critical care things that you do during your residency. Mm. So that's why only one year is necessary. At least that's according to the boards. Uh, for internal medicine and emergency medicine, uh, we, we need to do a two-year pathway. So two years of straight critical care. Uh, and then you're an intensivist. So that's the emergency medicine pathway and then the straight internal medicine critical care pathway. Um, the vast majority of internists that do critical care, however, go into pulmonary. Yep. Uh, and so uh, if you go into pulmonary, and that's just based on um, how critical care came to be back in the day when critical care was a very new specialty, um, whenever somebody got on the ventilator, it was the pulmonologist that were called <laughs> in to take care of the patient. And then sort of that evolved into the specialty of critical care pulmonary critical care. And so in the United States, because of the history, um, the main way, the main pathway to go into critical care, especially through internal medicine is through pulmonary critical care. And that, that program looks like two years of pulmonary heavy stuff, and then one year of critical care. Uh, nowadays, this is evolving because critical care is such an important specialty in and of itself now you can do critical care through multiple pathways, even through internal medicine. You could be a nephrology critical care person, do two years of nephrology, and then one year of critical care. You can be an ID critical care person, two years of nephro you know, ID, one year of critical care. Uh, you can be, I don't think there are any endocrinologists who are <laughs> intensivists, but, but I have a good friend who you know, loves endocrine emergencies, who lectures on it all the time. She's great. Um, and, but but there's no pathway. Yeah. Um, there are starting to be pathways through cardiology. So you can do cardiology and do critical care. So uh, it's, it's evolving. There are very few of those, but, but now um, I, I think pretty soon what's going to happen is critical care is going to become its own little special specialty and you yeah. just do critical care. Yeah. You know, you may want to do some other subspecialty, but you got to do critical care if you do want to do critical care. And that's how it's like, uh, you know, in, in, um, in Canada, Everybody does two years of critical care. Mm. If you want to do pulmonary, you become a respirologist. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, all of those pathways into critical care, do, do you think that's a reflection of burnout in, in the physician's primary specialty? Or is it a reflection of not enough exposure to what critical care is during medical school for people to understand that critical care is this awesome little island of of medicine that everyone wants to go to eventually yeah um you know that that's a interesting thought i've thought about this too um you know i think the 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 reason that there are multiple pathways to critical care is because uh just out of necessity you know there are different types of patient populations that need critical care so for example you know post-surgery big surgeries like whipples and transplants that's a whole different animal, cardiothoracic surgery. 
that's a whole different animal of critical care um, that needs sort of like a specialized surgical ICU. Uh, whereas trauma, that's a whole nother sub, you know, sub subset of patients. And then you have burns and then you have general medicine with, you know, lots of uh, medical emergencies, pneumonias, you know, so, so on and so forth. Uh, and so by necessity, you've had these different pathways to go into critical care. But what I'm seeing now more of is a lot of mixed ICUs. You have, you know, ICUs where those, there are critical care departments and you have intensivists who are anesthesiologists, surgeons, uh, emergency medicine docs, internists, and pulmonologists all working in that same critical care group and covering multiple ICUs. So neuro ICU is another one, you know, the neuro ICU, uh, you can become a neurologist and decide to do neuro ICU and do a two-year fellowship and become a neuro intensivist mm -hmm. and work in an ICU, learn how to uh, manage vents and renal replacement therapy, but all your patients are either stroke or subarachnoid hemorrhage or some other neurological problem like yeah. demyelinating conditions like myasthenia or whatever. And so, you know, there are many different varieties. And about burnout, I'll, I'll make I'll make this one comment. Um, people ask me, hey, why didn't you put, do pulmonary critical care? You know, you, when you burn out, because it's in inevitable. Uh, you're going to want something to fall back on. And that's the argument that's used to recruit people to go into pulmonary critical care. And I say to them, if I burn out as an intensivist, the last thing I want to do is do pulmonary clinic all day. <laughs> you know, yeah. why would anybody do that? If I, if I ever burn out, I'm going to do less of what I'm doing yeah. and do some, something else entirely, not shift my work and focus on a different population that I'm not passionate about. Um, I'm just going to do less ICU. Yeah. And, um, you know, over time, I think the secret to burnout for me has been diversifying my activities. Mm. So I, I do a little admin, I do a little research, I do a little, you know, ICU, and then I do other things that I enjoy. Yeah. You know, spend time with the family. Yeah. In an academic center, you, you mentioned rounds earlier. What is something a student listening to this or a resident listening to this, what's something that they should understand about how to present patients or how to prepare to present patients that really helps you as an attending to, to help the team, to help their patients, yeah. to, to really yeah. help them do a good job? Yeah, I think um, you have to be prepared and you have to um, you know, what I have to say is everybody, every unit is different in terms of the culture. So the way you present in a surgical ICU is going to be very different than the way you present in a medical ICU versus when you present in a trauma ICU. And so, um, really, uh, you, you have to do your research and prior to showing up on the rotation, talk to other students that have been there. And oftentimes students are very resilient and very creative and they help each other out, right? And so students and residents and, and interns and residents are all the same in terms of like when they're presenting patients, they're expected to present in the same fashion. And so residency programs will have a template that you follow. You know, this is how we present in our unit. Mm. And so if you take a template that's used at Washington Hospital Center 
and go to Baltimore at Baltimore <laughs> Shock Trauma and try to use that same template. That ain't going to fly. Yeah. You got to do your research and talk to the people that have come before you, talk to the students that have done their AIs and say, hey, what does that template look like? And can you teach me some, give me some pearls as to how the attendings like the presentations to go, how the residents and fellows like the presentations to go. Uh, and that's, that's how you prepare. Every unit is different. Yeah. And so you, you have to sort of tailor your preparation towards that specific unit. I would do the same thing if I were to show up as an attending for the first time. I would ask the attending, hey, how do you like the run rounds? And how do, what do the nurses expect from the attending? Yeah. You know? Yep. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into critical care medicine? Ooh, that's a, that's a deep question, isn't it? <laughs> um, what do I wish I knew now? You know, I, I, um, maybe I'm just a positive, I'm too positive sometimes and uh, optimistic maybe. And, um, I, I love what I do. Uh, I, I, I don't regret a thing about how my career has come to be. Um, you know, I, uh, I enjoy very much enjoy, uh, what I do and, uh, it's really the most rewarding thing, uh, that you can do, uh, at least again, I'm extremely biased. Um, and it's been reinforced over the past year, uh, believe it or not, despite the, the difficult circumstances we just went through and the volume of patients, the sheer volume of patients, all ICUs across the country have had to, to endure. Um, I can tell you this early in my career, uh, I did not know how to pace myself. I was so excited about being in the ICU and I felt obligated because it was wartime. Um, I, I couldn't leave the ICU. Um, and so what I would tell myself if I had an opportunity to go back in time and talk to myself <laughs> during that time is, Hey, you know, the, the patients aren't all going to die when you leave, like take a break. Other people, you got, you got to hand off to other people. Other people, they, they got it. They'll take care of the patients. Um, that's what I would tell myself. And so um, I, I think over time, you just have to realize to, the, to trust your colleagues um, and work in an environment where you're sort of supporting each other. Uh, and, um, you know, one thing, one mistake I made, and I, this is sort of a touchy topic, but you don't, you want to maintain your compassion. You want to be a doctor. You want to care, but you don't, you don't want to overcare. You don't mm -hmm. want to be so vested, invested and in, in emotionally vested that it drains you. Yeah. Because, um, you, you don't have unlimited compassion. You, you can, you can run out. And so, um, you have to pace yourself. And then when you feel yourself running out of that, that compassion, you gotta, you gotta, change the scenario, change the situation, fill your cup back up and then come back. Um, and, and that's what I failed to do early on in my career. I think, uh, you know, in a three year period, I was in the ICU weekends included every single day, minus 10 days that I took leave three years. And it was because I was new to the burn unit. I had to prove myself as a non-surgeon. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was, it was wartime. So I was like, I can't leave. Who's going to take care of the patients if I leave? Yeah. You know, that was that mindset. 
Uh, and people were just coming in and in, you know, uh, wave after wave of patients were coming in who were like, you know, 10 years younger than me. So how could I leave? Uh, but it was okay to leave even back then. I, I, I should have, you know, I had partners and yeah. uh, burn surgeons that were there. So they, they did fine without me, you know, before I got there, they did <laughs> me when I left. So yeah. <laughs> I was not as important as I thought I was. Yeah. Well, well, let me ask you the, the language that you just used there about, uh, needing to prove yourself as a non-surgeon. Was that, was that your mentality or was that truth? Yeah, it was my mentality. Yeah. Um, some degree of truth there because, you know, there's that constant battle between surgery and medicine, internal medicine, right? Um, and uh, that unit in particular uh, was famous for uh, only having surgeons mm. in that unit. And I was, I just happened to be the first uh, no. non-surgeon to practice in that unit. And so because of that circumstance, it was a unique situation. Yeah where I felt like I had to prove myself for all the other internists out there. You know? <laughs> for the future, <laughs> the future of internists. I know, right. <laughs> what do you like the most about being a critical care doc? Um, so here's the thing. Uh, I, I get asked this all the time where, man, you know, Dr. Chung, it must be, this is stressful, isn't it? Like, aren't you stressed? Like, isn't this, isn't critical care stressful dealing with urgent, you know, situations, people dying left and right? And I, and, and I always say, no, it's not stressful. Um, you know what's stressful is being a general surgeon or a plastic surgeon operating on an elective case and the expectation being perfection. Yeah. That's stressful. Like no matter how many times you've done a case, like you do a th thousand appies or a thousand gallbladders, um, there's going to be that one or two or three or four patients, no matter how perfect you are, because of the circumstance, because of the, uh, the patient, you know, um, uh, comorbidities or whatever, that there's going to be a bad outcome. The expectation though is perfection. Like when you consent the patient, when the patient's looking at your eyes, they're like, I'm going to make it out of this and you're going to fix me. That's the expectation. And so, you know, anytime something other than perfection happens, that's stress. Uh, in the ICU, the expectation is death. Okay. You know, people come to the ICU because they're desperate. Uh, they're crashing, they're physiologically deranged, and they're about, they're going to die if you don't do anything. And so, you know, I think one of the things that I try to do when, when it's really, really bad, not every patient obviously is, you know, coming in dying, but, you know, I, I immediately start talking with the family. Hey, this is not a good situation. You know, we'll do our best to, to help your family member through this, but things aren't looking good. He may die. You know, I lay it out because you know what? You, you have to prepare folks to, for the eventuality of potential death. Um, and so when the, when the expectation is death and you paint it in that way, um, you have a thousand patients, you know, maybe just by sheer luck, um, or because humans are resilient, uh, on average, 70% will get out of the ICU, right? And so 70% of the time out of 100, you're having success, <laughs> yeah. you know? And so, uh, you know, and when patients die, um, you take them through that process, you take the family through that process so that the death, the dying process is as smooth and as painless as possible. 
So there's even reward as a provider, as a clinician, when there is that death. Yeah. Um, and so no matter what happens, you're in a win-win situation. Yeah. So it's not stressful at all. It's all perspective. It's very yeah, yeah. It's all rewarding. That's it's awesome. so rewarding. Wh whether or not the patient passes away, if you do a good job in, in helping them through that process or, you know, you luck out and the patient just miraculously gets better. Sometimes you can make a hundred wrong decisions and the patients will, or, you know, complications will occur and patients will somehow make it out of it. Sometimes you do everything perfectly and they still die. Yeah. You have no control. What do you like the least? What do I like the least? You know, one of the things that, um, you know, I think when you become a doctor, um, you think of the traditional, like, small town doc who takes care of the entire family and, you know, has a panel of patients and you, like, get to know the patients throughout their entire life. And then they come into the hospital, you take care of them in the hospital and so on and so forth. You have this sort of image of what a doctor is or isn't. Uh, as an intensivist, I think the, the thing that um, doesn't exist is that sort of continuity uh, longitudinally. So unless you have a patient that keeps on coming back to the ICU, which is not a good thing. <laughs> Every time I, you know, a patient leaves the ICU, I'm like, bye, hope I never see you again, you know, in a good way. <laughs> but, um, but on occasion, you'll have some patients come back. And, and so over time, you'll, you'll get to know the family and, and the patients. Uh, but just by the na very nature of what ICU is, you don't really get to know the patients. You get to know their physiology and you get to know the families for in a very, you know, compact period of time, but you don't really get to know the patients over time. And so I think that's one thing that's missing um, in critical care is that longitudinal follow-up and the longitudinal relationships that you build with patients. Let's say you, if you were in a general surgery practice or a family medicine practice or you know, a pediatric practice, you watch the entire, you know, life of the kid grow up, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think there's some joy to that that's missing in critical care. Any final words of wisdom for the student or resident listening to this, thinking about critical care? Yeah, I think, um, you know, critical care isn't for everyone. Um, so I, I, you don't have to force yourself to, to, and pretend to like critical care. Uh, but you know, I think what I would say is there are many different types of critical care. Um, and, you know, you can have a critical care environment where things are hopping and people are crashing all the time and it's just, just chaos. You know, Baltimore shock trauma comes to mind as a fellow. Or you could be in a sleepy community hospital where, you know, uh, a code happens once every three, four months. And that's the excitement. And the rest of the time, you're just sort of helping patients go through the dying process and, and then holding hand, their hands through a difficult time. Um, and then you can, there are other like critical care situations where you could be in a long-term care facility or sort of like a hospice situation. And so there are many different types of critical care. Um, and so I, what I would say is um, if you like procedures, if you like the challenge uh, of um, having a lot of information come at you with problems that are um, sometimes, most of the time fixable, sometimes they're not. Um, I think critical care uh, is, is something you should think about. 
but also understand that there, there are many different types of critical care, many different pathways to go into critical care. Uh, and um, it, it is a very rewarding specialty at the end of the day uh, once you get into it. And, you know, we talked about infectious disease. You know, how, how did COVID become a critical care thing? Well, the final common pathway for every patient before, you know, when they're really sick, they end up in the ICU. And that was the limiting factor uh, for COVID. You know, if we had the same number of patients and they didn't get as sick, we would have been fine. Sure, the urgent cares would have been overloaded, but it were the the, the ICU bed cap- capacity was the issue, um, and so that highlights uh, the importance of I think um, the specialty. And there's a shortage of intensivists, uh, you know, projected out. I, there's a shortage of medicine <laughs> in general over the next decade or two decades, but critical care as a specialty is is uh, going to be in high demand um, if you go into it. Uh, so it's rewarding. It's, um, you know, it, there's a lot of variety that you wouldn't think uh, about as a student. Um, and uh, there are a lot of people out there that are enjoying what they're doing. And um, you should go talk to them. All right. There you have it. Hopefully this was an exciting episode for you. Definitely was very interesting to talk to Dr. Chung about his specialty of critical care medicine. On eShadowing this week, if you're listening to this episode as it's releasing on June 23rd, 2021, on eShadowing this week, I had Dr. Ni Darko on, an osteopathic trauma surgeon, to talk about his specialty. And so you can go check that out at eshadowing.com slash replay to check out the replay and and still get credit for that. You can check out eshadowing.com, all of our amazing guests in the future and in the past. All all of our old episodes get put up on our YouTube channel. Uh, It's a special eshadowing YouTube channel. You can find that. Just search for uh, eshadowing or go to eshadowing.com slash archive. You'll find all of that there. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.